My guest today is Amy Bird. She is an author, speaker, blogger, podcaster, and former coffee shop owner. Amy is author of several books, including Housewife Theologian, Theological Fitness, No Little Women, and Why Can't We Be Friends? And uh, most recently, she's author of Recovering From Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and that will be the book that sort of frames uh, a lot of our conversation today. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk. Yes, Scott, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Okay, so first question, uh, I would imagine that some of the reactions to your, your work in recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, I would imagine that some of the reactions were totally unsurprising to you. And right. some of the reactions may have been surprising. So I wonder if you might talk a bit about what you found unsurprising and what you found uh, surprising, if anything. Right. Well, you know, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood wasn't my original title. <laughs> but, um, you know, talking with marketing and, and things like that, um, they wanted more of a direct title. And um, so I Mission knew that that was good. Yeah, knew that was going to get me into a little bit more trouble because it is a direct reference to recovering biblical manhood and womanhood that uh, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood published like 30 years ago. And, and I am directly critiquing that movement um, of biblical manhood and womanhood that, um, you know, I just refer to them as CBMW now have, you know, pretty much saturated the evangelical subculture with their resources and their teaching on it. And I do think that, you know, it was important to directly critique because you, you got to name it. And, but, you know, really I wanted to reveal like, you know, if we peel that away, there's something much more beautiful in scripture um, with the whole meta narrative of God's design for man and woman and the function of our voices even. But um, so I knew that, uh, and there's different levels of the critique, like you're saying, like I knew that CBMW wouldn't like it. <laughs> and I, and their way of normally handling me was to ignore me, you know, um, when the Trinity debate started on my blog in 2016, um, I did have to invite a man to, to address it, to get it to be recognizable as a, a real problem. But, um, you know, that kind of went viral. And, and um, I was just saying with Josh McNall, I was just talking to him, you know, if you Google the Trinity debate, you get all, you know, all the men involved in the debate, but not the women who were behind it, um, who really started the whole thing. And, and um, we're taking note of what's in our women's resources and how a very important first order doctrine of the Trinity is um, being taught in an unorthodox way. Um, but what they did there was they just ignored me. <laughs> and, you know, they would, you know, go to the people I blog, the men that I blogged with, you know, wanting to, them to, you know, correct, have me correct what I'm saying, have me change what I'm saying. Uh, they wouldn't directly come to me. They wouldn't mention me in any of their um, writings. So I kind of expected that. Um, however, uh, Denny Burke did the president of CBMW. There were actually two negative reviews of my book on, on their website. First was Andy Nacelli's and then was Denny Burke's. Um, I think Andy's was better than Denny's, but um, both of them misrepresented my work. Uh, Burke really misrepresented my work. So that that's a very frustrating thing because I expect critique. I expect even like people who may sympathize with some of what I'm writing to still have critique. Um, and I, I want to be able to learn and grow from critique. But when people are just poisoning the well by misrepresenting your writing, um, then, you know, I have to decide, do I even respond to this? You know, it's almost beneath my dignity to respond to it, but then you know that they're, they are poisoning the well, that you need to speak up and say, that's not in my book, that's not what I'm writing. Um, that's a caricature that completely misrepresents what I'm writing. Um, so there was that, and, 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 and Burks particularly was trying to tell people how to think and what my motives were and things like that. Um, but then there's this group of people who have been kind of harassing me for a couple years. Uh, and, and they're throughout the Napark churches and Baptist churches, um, church officers even that make up this group. I knew that they were gonna really come at me um, with my book, Why Can't We Be Friends? You know, they, they really came at me with that. They had kind of like a 
they destroyed my cover of my book and changed it to why can't we be naked and like took the clothes off the characters on the book and you know put fuzzy lines in and you know told everybody that I'm telling men and women that they can go to hotel rooms together and have candlelight dinners and you know I'm going to start all these affairs in the church um which is not what the book is about <laughs> so I knew that that was going to be I, I wasn't prepared for the level of um you know, they started calling ahead of my speaking engagements, um, warning their churches to guard their families. Um, in my denomination, um, you know, they they started plotting to sabotage my Amazon page by just like mailing the book to each other and giving one star reviews so they wouldn't have to buy copies. You know, things like this organized harassment got pretty crazy. Um, you wouldn't expect that from church officers. So the level of 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 the harassment you know what it was was kind of shocking to me that they would invest so much into it and um you know I remember a professor friend was sitting down with me um while I was writing the book and he said are you ready for this like are you really ready for what's going to happen to you um and he said what you know what's your what would be horrible if you lost it and you know I said my church <laughs> that'd be terrible um and he said, well, I just want you to prepare for, you know, you might have to lose that too. Um, and sure enough, you know, one of my own elders was in that group that was harassing me and uh, not, you know, telling me about all these plans they had and, and things like that. So it's caused a lot of, a lot of um, destruction in my own church. And, and then I lost my, my job with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And, and that was a shock. Um, wasn't expecting that, but you know, we had just done an interview about the book right before all that went down to where, um, you know, my co-hosts were saying, well, we don't see anything majorly concerning in here. Um, everything that you're saying in principle is biblical. You know, there might be some applicatory parts or some, you know, minor parts that there'd be some differences with. Um, but yeah, there's donors. <laughs> There's, you know, there's just like CBMW has a lot of, you know, they just go far and wide in, into all the other parachurch organizations and seminaries. And same with, um, you know, some other seminaries that were connected to this group that was coming after me. So it's, it's just interesting when you see behind the curtain of how ugly it is. And, there, and there's different levels of cruelty, you know, like some might just be, we don't, you know, maybe this isn't what we want anymore. Um, but there can be more subtle, you know, the, the downright harassment's pretty bad and ugly and horrible and it should be easy to deal with, you know, as far as churches and discipline. Um, apparently it's a lot harder than it should be for the basics of just loving your neighbor. But um, then the, the more subtle forms of cruelty can, I, you know, they, they can turn the knife and hurt a little more. So were you prepared? <laughs> um, no, I guess not. I mean, how can you be really? Um, you can't pre-prepare for all that stuff. You can't, you don't know like what friends you're gonna lose, things like that. Um, and who's who's gonna just back off? Who's gonna say, you know, accuse you of things and you know, what's being said behind your back. The crazy part of it all, I think that I'm just the most not prepared for is that um, you know, I was prepared for some of the name calling and people thinking I'm a feminist or an egalitarian or things like that. But um, I wasn't prepared for the level of vitriol and even distancing um, and, and I guess maybe canceling um, just because I'm talking about discipleship. I'm not talking about who can lead. I'm not, I don't think I'm making any kind of um, super progressive uh, statements in the book uh, so it's shocking to me that there's that much fear over investing in women as disciples. Hmm. Um, would you say that the, that the aftermath of the book, uh, um, and the, the fallout and the impact that it's had on your personal life, uh, does it in any way dissuade you from continuing or make you think, oh, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do or lessen your resolve? <sighs> you know, I asked myself that right in the beginning. Um, 
when some people that I, I didn't think I would have issues with, I did, you know, and it was really painful. Um, so I, I just thought, is this even worth it? Like, you know, do I want to keep writing? Um, cause I, it's never been like, oh, I need to be writing books. Um, but I've always, you know, had you know, areas I wanted to grow in concerns I saw. And, and that's what's led to the, each book. They've kind of built off of each, each other. Um, so I'm like, I don't need to keep doing this, but, um, you know, I just felt like the reactions proved my point so much more than I could have ever thought. Um, so I feel like it, it's showing the yellow wallpaper <laughs> that I use as a metaphor in the book. Uh, it, it isn't just these invisible fences. It's, it's glaring. It's, it's, it's quite cruel even. Um, so I don't regret writing it. Um, you know, several people have asked me that. I think it's important and somebody's got to do it. So I just feel like, you know, God can use anyone to do any of these things. Who am I? But I think one reason why I've been able to do it and maybe why it's caused some more anger is because I'm not a professor. I'm not married to a pastor. So yeah, you know, I can lose my job with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or I might not be invited to speak at certain conferences or speaking engagements, but I really don't care. Like, I think that's what's so freeing. Um, and I think that's what really angers people as well is that um, my identity isn't in this stuff. I'm not trying to have some big lucrative career off of it. Um, I just think it's important. So that gives me more freedom to speak about it, but then I also have to pay, you know, there, there are personal costs for sure that, that you pay. But for me, that does strengthen my resolve to how uh, important this is. Because so yeah, many well, people have come forward with the abuse that they've suffered. Hmm. It's smoked out a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, these, a number of these guys are accustomed to interacting with people who derive their income or whose profession is tied to institutions over which these guys exercise influence. Right. And it really frustrates them when they're forced to confront people who they can't control. Right. <laughs> and so then you get the misrepresentation, just the blatant, transparent misrepresentations. It's, I'm, it's ludicrous. Yeah. It's I ludicrous. Mean, I feel like basic things we're called to as a Christian, you know, truth, <laughs> love. And I, yeah, I mean, I'm not eager to talk at length about Tenny Burke in particular, but you know, this this very semester at Southern Seminary, he's teaching hermeneutics and ethics. So yeah. I just have to wonder which of those things, if not both. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, uh, I yeah, because I I mean, I've had that like I've had not nothing like what you've endured, but I I've I've had him misre misrepresent things I've said uh -huh. transparently, mm -hmm. and um. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's sort of, at first it's like, is this really, is this really what's happening? And you like right. reread it. It's, and it's crazy like, making. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, so how is, how has this reaction changed your understanding of the debate around complementarianism, which by, by which I mean this, mm -hmm. like your understanding of what the disagreement is really about? Because right. you write a carefully reasoned, beautifully articulated argument. And then the reaction is Thank basically you. like, yeah, she doesn't believe the Bible or slippery slope <laughs> right. uh, or right. whatever, right? Just no real engagement with your actual work. Um, so what do you make of that? I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not reacting to your argument. So what are they doing? Right. Um, yeah, th there's been some good critique. Um, you know, I, I do want to say that. Um, and I'm sure the book can be improved upon. But um, yeah, what I found is the, the true nature of the debate is not, um, is not in line with the actual stated principles in a lot of ways. Um, however, you know, when I am uncovering some of those stated principles um, from their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, then you can see how this, the governing principles have worked in that way. Because when you peel it all back, it basically comes down to an Aristotelian view of man and woman still. It's just uh, been repackaged 
Um, so now instead of saying that, you know, woman is deformed man and, and, and that she's inferior, the inferior sex and not capable of the same level of logic and, and these kind of things. Now it is that, no, no, we're going to give women um, an upgrade. Like we get to be part of the image of God now <laughs> and, um, and we get to be called equal. But there's that but, you know, biblical manhood and womanhood for CBMW and, and complementarians, because they started this movement, you know, comes down to what they even have in, in the Danvers statement is they've introduced this word roles. And these roles are ontological. Like that's not the actual meaning of the word role. The word role comes from the theater, you know, you're playing a part, um, but they use it, you know, here's a word that is not in most biblical translations at all. And they use, they use it like crazy. I mean, I think we use it like crazy now because we're just in the water and we don't even realize it. But so they talk about male and female roles. And what that comes down to is authority and submission. It's an ontological authority of man over woman. And when you get down to the practical stuff about, you know, what does complementarianism look like in marriage? I mean, it all comes down to the men make the decisions. That's what it is. And, you know, they get into some kind of kooky stuff in the book about, uh, femininity and masculinity and what that looks like. And, uh, you know, women not shouldn't strength train and men need to be careful about how they ask women for directions if they get lost and can't find a man, horror of horrors <laughs> to ask, uh, you know, weird things like that. But um, it really comes down to men having the final say or the say. And, um, you know, I thought, I know a lot of complementarians, uh, you know, I've kind of grown up in churches that are quote unquote complementarian. Like this can't be like, you know, when I see it, how it, it functions in everyday life, this can't be what everybody means. Right. <laughs> you know, and I think even Russell Moore, like years back, and, and I think that he might write something different now than he wrote then, but he complained in, in a journal article about how, you know, too many complementarians are actually functionally egalitarian in their marriage. And we need to do something about this you know, there's mutuality happening. Uh, what's, what's going on here? So I feel like when it comes down to it, it is a power dynamic and it's about power over. And that is so unscriptural because I mean, Jesus models something completely different. And, and he tells his disciples this in Matthew. He's like, don't be like the world who, who are exercising authority over, but the first must be last. If you want to lead, get in the back. Um, actually get underneath and elevate others. Be the first to love, the first to sacrifice, and the first to give. Um, you know, set aside your rights. That's leadership. And that's what I was trying to, to show in the book and um, just you know, much more of a beauty and richness behind the design of man and woman and uh, the story that our bodies tell. It's so reductive and unbiblical, this whole framework of roles and those roles being ontologic authority and submission. So, so to what extent do you think that this complementarian position, at least as it's defended by like CBMW and, the, and those folks, um, mm -hmm. to, to what extent has that position ceased to be strictly about a view of men and women and authority uh, and become a broader set of commitments to do with the role of authority in morality and church polity. And by that, I mean this, right? Like, so some of their arguments are just so bad that mm -hmm. you have to wonder at a certain point if there isn't a subtext there, which is that this argument doesn't actually matter. Uh, <laughs> we're the ones in charge yeah. and you all, men and women both will submit to us and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, it's interesting because it's a parachurch organization. And so it's been able to saturate into this broader kind of reformed-ish evangelical culture, which spans a lot of denominations um, within, you know, Presbyterian, Presbyterian, Anglican, Baptist, non-denominational, um, and more. So, you know, we have all kinds of different ecclesial setups there. But what I've, I've found happening, and, and it's interesting because, you know, just hearing from different, you know, victims of spiritual abuse in, in different churches where um, this teaching has really been a fuel for that. Um, the power structures in each one, you, you find, like, for example, in my own 
denomination, um, you know, having to actually go through an ecclesial trial and, and others that are because of my writing and the behavior of some church officers, you, you know, I see all of a sudden that, well, when you sign up for membership in, in the church, like you're not given some kind of crash course on how to file a formal complaint <laughs> or how to file charges or any of the avenues that you have um, formally to confront any kind of abuse. Um, for women, especially like, you know, I'll hear from, from women, like one woman told me her whole session was horrible to her, you know, sending her back to an abusive husband because he repented, you know, everything should be better now. And um, for four years, she's, you know, she's worried about the safety of others and, and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, some said, well, you know, it's within your rights to file a formal complaint. Don't complain to me, Do, you know, go through the process. Well, if you don't file this complaint in you know, the way that they want it done, according to the book of church order, well then um, they can throw it, throw it out. We don't, we're not told how to do this. It's a, it's a totally different kind of language. And then, you know, what if you got some help from that, from somebody, like you're already been traumatized by the people you reached out to with authority to help you. Um, you know, who's gonna drive her to the presbytery meeting that's hours down the road in another state maybe? Who's gonna care for her children while she's gone? Don't you think her husband's gonna show up? How's she gonna go back home to the same man afterwards? How's that gonna go? So most women, who, the, who need it most, the most vulnerable, don't even have the luxury of accessing the very process and system that could help them. And then, you know, what you show up at is the Presbytery, like, are they friends with the elders? Like, are they gonna treat you the same exact way? Because they do defer to the voices and authority. So you see that the woman's voice has just been shut out. And, you know, I don't wanna be overly simplifying things, but you know, You've got these men in close behind closed doors with just they have all the perspective of men in authority. So they really need uh, to hear from the more vulnerable and mar marginalized who are affected by that, their decisions because they don't even have that perspective when they come in, you know. And, and it's one thing I noticed is um, there's not even like a victim impact statement in these trials. I mean, the secular world does that. But the victim may not ever, you may never hear from the victim. There's, there's not a, something in place to care for them in the process. Uh, everything comes at, if they go through the process, it's at their cost the whole time. So there's just so many different layers. And, you know, and I'm just talking maybe in a more Presbyterian form of government from which I'm experiencing it right now. And I know that there's um, you know, problems in, in every form of government. Um, none of them are perfect. So. We really need, I think, to reevaluate how our, even our systems of government under this complementarian teaching is um, affecting the most vulnerable who you're supposed to called to care for. Yeah, I wonder if they would say that this notion of needing to hear the perspective of marginalized voices or the perspective of uh, victims, I mean, the rhetoric around victims is fascinating to me because they accuse actual victims of actual abuse of playing the victim. Yeah. Right? Meanwhile, they'll complain about any number of ways in which they think they've been treated unjustly, <laughs> which is basically like people arguing with them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but, but, but I wonder, I think, yeah, I think their response would be something like, yeah, we don't really need to hear from those uh, voices because we've got, you know, scripture and we know what scripture means because we're the guys who say what scripture means. We're the experts, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, that's one thing I try to um, get at in my book is the function of the female voice in scripture. A lot of the time interrupts this male dominant text and it, it, it reveals kind of the story behind the story. It makes visible what's invisible. It, it's exactly what I'm talking about right now. And, and you see that over and over again. So, you know, I just think that, well, okay, we do have scripture <laughs> and, it's, and it's showing us how, you know, think of the, the um, Canaanite woman who comes, comes to Jesus, you know, wanting her child healed. And, um, you know, she quote unquote changes his mind, right? But he listens to her. And, and, you know, obviously he's throwing her the softballs. He's, he's wanting her to do this. He knows he's going to do this. He knows he's going to bless her. But um, 
she shows just that she gets from the crumbs off the table of of Israel, you know, um, so, so much faith and so, you know, so much theology about who Christ is and what he can do that she knows that just even the crumbs, you know, she, she's just claiming those and he listens. And, and you have like the whole book of Ruth and Esther just showing us this female perspective of God's Hesed love for his people, or just look at like the, um, the midwives, um, Shipra and Pua, who don't listen, don't kill off the, um, the male line in delivery. And why do we know that? We know that because they shared their story and it was recorded. So, you know, all these women are actual traders to the faith as well. Uh, their, their voice is contributing um, to passing down the faith. Um, their voice is even contributing to giving other eyes to see what's going on. God is always giving us those eyes to see what is going on in, in the marginalized and the oppressed in scripture. But now these very words like that are used in scripture, like oppressed, <laughs> um, you know, those are like social justice words. And so if we use those now, it's like not, not good. We're, we're right. considered the liberal ones or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's like there, there's an aversion to anything that might upset the the narrative from the perspective of those in positions of authority, and yeah. and you and you hear things like yes, yeah, so so like on page let's see page one twenty one in the book, you mention because because you just made reference to you know scripture talking about the oppressed, mm-hmm. and, and, and that that in a lot of these conversations, scripture isn't really the most salient authority, right? <laughs> so yeah. you mentioned, you know, the Danvers statement mm-hmm. uh, and you say, quote, the Danvers statement is the unifying authoritative teaching for CBMW. The current president calls it their, quote, true north. It matters more how one views the roles of men and women than holding to orthodox teaching on a first order doctrine namely the Trinity, right? This is embedded in a discussion about uh, yeah. the, the Trinity. And you, you hear things from these folks like, you know, the complementarian structure of various things like scripture as a whole or complementarian structure of the gospel, which, I mean, the first time I came up against that kind of, those kinds of claims, I just, I, I mean, it's really bizarre. <laughs> right, well, and John Piper sort of claiming that the, the church has a masculine feel, the Christianity has a masculine feel. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting since uh, in scripture we see the church referred to as the bride of Christ. <laughs> it's actually a feminine feel. Um, yeah, they, they so associate. And here's the thing, like complementarian is actually a great word. So that's why this really stinks because it was actually the egalitarians who first coined it in their teaching and that was kind of hijacked. Um, so, you know, when you use a word like complementarian or even biblical, <laughs> womanhood sounds great so you really do have to kind of do some deconstructing of what are they what's what do they mean by their terms um you know and they even start talking about things like masculine virtue and feminine virtue and discipling what you know what, what is it the different uh, virtue wise that i'm supposed to pursue than than you're supposed to pursue scott i thought we were all to, to be christ-like and and you know when we see the, the fruits of the spirit it, they're they're not gendered um, when we see the one anotherings, they're not gendered. Um, when, you know, Christ preached the Sermon on the Mount, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourners. Um, you know, some of those sound very feminine, but uh, he's, he's preaching to men and women. That's how we're to see blessedness, to know him, you know, where he meets us. So it makes things much more complicated than they need to be. I think, you know, we pursue these as men and as women, of course, there's going to be a feminine masculine flavor that kind of permeate permeates out of that. And I don't want to deny, you know, even some of the cultural, you know, cultural ways that we express our manhood and womanhood. I don't want to deny that that's there and, and can even be helpful in some ways, but I don't want to overgeneralize and, or say that they're essential to our sex. So you mentioned a, a minute ago about your, how your emphasis and your work is on discipleship and not, you know, who should be pastors or, or, or right. what have you. Though I have heard you observe, <laughs> I, I've, I've relished some of your observations about um, 
you know, the prohibition on, on women being pastors vis-a-vis the prohibition on, you know, like 98% of men being pastors also because they don't, <laughs> they also don't meet the biblical criteria. Right. Right. But yeah, your work is dealing with discipleship and there's been this reaction uh, against, you know, claims that you've made about discipleship and you tell us a story about an insight that you had involving one of your children uh, when she was a teenager and um, <laughs> the pizza revelation. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, and, and so you liken that to, you know, it sort of dawns on you like, Oh, I haven't been preparing my child to be a, a functional adult who's a contributing member of society. And so I need to make some changes <laughs> here as a parent. Right. Um, right. And then you, and then you, you liken that, I think very aptly to some of what goes on in the church, uh, quote, they don't even, this is referring to, to church members, uh, quote, they don't even have a good understanding of the basics of the faith, the doctrine of God, his word, or his church. They don't have a mature understanding of what kind of book the Bible is and how to do the work of reading for understanding. And I, I wonder what your reaction might be to the following like hypothesis on some levels and some circles uh, that we're talking about, there actually isn't an interest in cultivating robust discipleship that would allow people to be competent readers of scripture and theological thinkers. There's this kind of learned helplessness um, that, that they're interested in cultivating because as long as we're not thinking for ourselves, then we're just going to sort of like, okay, those are the guys who tell us what the Bible means and this is what they say. So here we go. What what do you think about that? Well, isn't it ironic because I think one of the big things I learned growing up in the Protestant faith was this criticism that the Roman Catholics, you know, they're told how to think. They're told what the Bible says by, you know, the Pope, the hierarchy. And um, they don't have actual Bibles that they read for themselves. Like we have actual Bibles that we read for ourselves. And here we are. (laughs) And I think it's, you know, celebrity culture has really added to it as well. And and even academia in some ways, uh, you know, we think these are the people authorized. We can't possibly know what scripture means on our own. And I do, there's truth to that because we, we need to read as an interpretive community of faith. That includes our, our church, it includes the broader church around us and the voices around us. And it definitely includes the history, you know, the church, confessing church historically. So there is this importance of reading as an interpretive community. But um, how does that work in then with the priesthood of all believers? We do need teachers. However, we, as disciples, we're supposed to be coming teachers ourselves, even if it's in an informal way. There's just so many parts of scripture, tell, you know, besides the whole model of discipleship, that the context of what the disciples would know it means. Um, if we're being called disciples, if all of Christ's people are being called disciples, then we too are supposed to teach at some level. So we need to have competence in our reading. Um, and so we see that all over in scripture, um, over and over again, like, you know, in Hebrews 5.12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. And, and that's a rebuke. And, you know, when I re- read that, when I was studying Hebrews for the first time to teach it, I thought, you know, here this is, it's, it's really a sermon letter. And um, I don't know how many of us could sit and listen and follow Hebrews as a sermon. <laughs> Um, in one sitting, if we were to show up Sunday morning and, and Hebrews was preached, um, it's pretty meaty theologically. And here the author, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is telling us that he's giving them the milk. How in the world then has it become, you know, too much meat for us to even digest now? So I do think it, there's a lot of similarities to our own cr- critique of the Roman Catholic Church. We just lean on others to tell us what to think. And we're not being taught how to think and how to ask good questions. And there's this fear that we can't do that. And I think the leaders have that fear as well. And I don't think that God, and you see Jesus' model of discipleship in in the New Testament, 
It's not based on that kind of fear. He's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid if we get things wrong sometimes. Um, sure, we need to sharpen one another, move towards the truth. And, you know, I've written a lot about discernment. I think it's really important. But, um, and we have our confessions to help us as guardrails as we do this. So um, we're just not being taught these things. Yeah. And, and it's perhaps worth noting that this um, sort of critique of the Catholic Church, and I'm speaking as someone who spent much of my professional life at Catholic institutions, mm-hmm. is, is really just a caricature. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and it may have had some, uh, you know, validity uh, historically, like centuries ago. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what you just described sounds a lot more like to, uh, to me, like what I see in Protestant circles, evangelical Protestant circles, than anything right. I've witnessed in, in the Catholic context. Isn't that um, interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's such a wide range of theological disagreement among uh, practicing Catholics. Mm-hmm. And yet at a whole lot of evangelical institutions. Well, I mean, for one thing, look, Catholic institutions are not shy about hiring non-Catholics, hmm. right? For one thing. Uh, yeah, whereas there you are. A lot of evangel- <laughs> right, no, exactly, right. Um, and um, at a lot of evangelical institutions, um, you know, they don't hire outside their tradition. And there are certain lines that are, sort of inexplicable that like you're just not allowed to cross or you're you're done mm-hmm. yeah theologically yeah you know, even when it comes to like the sexes um i feel like in the conservative evangelical church we're letting our ethics lead and the theology has kind of like followed behind um and then a lot of that i do think is out of fear of what's going on in our culture um, you know, the sexual revolution and these things and um, gender fluidity and, and all this and and how quickly the pace of it is going right now. Um, but we focus the conversation on like what men and women can and cannot do and should and should not do. And even on important things like, um, you know, in the church, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk to the youth about not having sex before marriage and, and abstinence and you know, we'll preach about pro, you know, pro-life sermons, um, and we'll, we'll we'll preach against homosexual marriage and and uphold marriage between one man and one woman. Um, but we don't get behind these questions of the meaningfulness of our sex, and so I I think we're doing a major disservice um, because you know what I'm showing in the book too is is what's being taught about that isn't necessarily biblical, even if the ethics are or where we, you know, want to end up. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's, I think it's absolutely right to say that the, that the ethics is driving the theology and it's poor ethics uh, in terms of reasoning. And it's, and because the ethical reasoning is based on the culture war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, reactionary. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it also doesn't address the fact that there's hurting, suffering people, you know, caught up in, in, in these very statements. So um, if, if we can get to the biblical meaning behind all of this, and, and that's something I'm really working on in my next book, Sexual Reformation, um, Restoring the Dignity and Personhood of Man and Woman. Um, I'm really working out of mainly the Song of Songs, but that book has so many intertextual references to the rest of scripture in it. It's just like, I think, a microcosm of scripture um, telling us the meta narrative of uh, Christ's vassal love for his bride. And, um, you know, when we get to that story and, and really look at it there, there's, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so awe-inspiring. Um, it orients our desires in the right places, first vertically before horizontally speaking. So um, I think that's what we need to recover. And then we can actually address not only the, the rights and wrongs ethically, but the, the whys behind it and, um, the actual suffering involved and in, in what we're called to. So that, so that what you're working on with uh, Song of Songs would provide, so when, when, when you approach scripture, there are obviously various places where interpretive questions arise, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you are gonna take a certain kind of interpretive uh, lens when you are reading it. So for example, right, there are places where Paul appears to say uh, at least at surface level, contradictory things about right. uh, the sexes, right? Like there's there's 
there's no longer male nor female in one place. And then uh, in another place, women should be quiet in church, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So do we read uh, women should be quiet in church through the lens of there's no male nor female or vice versa, right? And so right. I take it that you're, you're, what you're currently working on is going to offer a kind of like a compelling story about that, that might furnish an interpretive lens for yes. other parts of scripture, like Paul's statements on gender. So somebody's going to come along like in the CBMW and say, yeah, but women should be quiet in church. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there's like, there's this whole book that's well-researched and beautifully reasoned, but, but Paul. Yeah. So, so what do you, yeah. I mean, how do you cope with that? Oh, golly. I don't know how I can like, cope with it. You're doing a lot of interpretive work, right? I am. And, and you know, I'm doing it as a lay person, you know, an informed lay person. So, and I think it's important. Like, I think we need academics, we need pastors and we need lay people to be in conversations about these things. So we're coming at it from different angles, but um, you know, I think that's where song of songs, does such a great service to the church is that it gives us this interpretive lens. It gives us an eschatological imagination. And I think we've lost that in our reading of scripture and we really need to recover it because that's what we're, we're called to. And we can't deny that every single person who interprets scripture has to use an imagination of some sort anyway. Um, so here we're given the whole meta narrative in concentrate in, in allegory in, in, in beautiful, mysterious, you know, language, but when you really dive deep in there, you see it's full of treasures of um, different allusions and echoes and intertextual references throughout scripture. Um, you see that John was a major singer of the song and uh, there's so many references in, in his gospel and in Revelation. So it's just really interesting. Um, it's called the song of all songs. And you know the, the church fathers referred to it as the holy of holies of scripture. Mm. So, um, I think it is. I think it's where we see Christ present with his bride. It takes us behind the veil. Um, it does something to us um, in a powerful way. So, you know, I'm, I, I think it ministers to us too. It's, it's what's ministered to me through having to, you know, go through some suffering this year. But in it, you know, you see the typology of man and woman. And, and we don't talk about that. You know, what our bodies represent and, you know, woman is Zion. She represents the second order. She, she represents our telos, where we are headed. And um, you know, that makes a big difference of how you view woman. And so she kind of represents the realm of where we're headed and man kind of represents the means, how, how we get there. And, and we see that in, the, in Christ's um, economic work. So it's a beautiful story told in there. And, we, and I think that, you know, the medieval church used to use the song to help us interpret harder parts of scripture. <laughs> And now, you know, since modernity, uh, you know, we've, we've lost that great story being told in the song and we look at it, we've kind of completely flat-footed it to be about uh, marriage and virginity. And, you know, I remember early in my marriage, my husband and I went to a study and it was like cassette tapes <laughs> back in the day um, of a pastor, a well-known pastor, uh, I think his name is Tommy Nelson did a whole series on the Song of Songs and it kind of like, you know, the advertisement for it is that you're going to have this amazing marriage and sex life and all this stuff. And you're listening to it and you're like, really? Like, that's all you're getting out of that? You know, what's going on here? So, um, and, and since then, you know, I've, I've read, you know, so many modern commentaries that they, they do that. They just flat foot it to be about, you know, one commentary um, talks about how the Song of Songs is a, a cold, a cold shower for single women and Proverbs is supposed to be a cold shower for single men, you know, <laughs> strange stuff. So yeah, I prefer to do a, you know, a canonical reading of any book at any passage of scripture is you got to look at it in the context of the whole canon of scripture. Why is it in this part of the canon? And so I think the song really helps serve us in that way as a, a an overarching meta narrative. So when we come to these other verses, and you know, some of these verses are hard to interpret. I mean, heck, even Peter said some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Um, so I don't think that we should read them in such a biblicist uh, way to where we're just going to strip it from the rest of scripture and say, see, it says this. Because, you know, we don't do that with, you know, when it, Jesus says he's a door. We know right. that, you know, he's speaking 
not literally, he's a door with wood and hinges and these things. Um, and you know, Paul himself uses uh, allegory in his teaching and, and Jesus does too um, on, on the road to Emmaus. So, you know, I, he's telling them all about how all scripture points to him. He's giving them an interpretive lens. And I think the Song of Songs does that as well. It gives us that eschatological imagination. Yeah. Yeah, so that- And I would go brings, there and say twice, he, he encourages the woman saying, let me hear your voice. Right, right. So that brings to mind uh, the fact that proof texting with this crowd is yeah. like rampant. What it is really that about? Is. What is that about? That, it, that used to be, it used to be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if that's, if it's no longer a bad thing or if they claim that that's not what they're doing, but obviously they're just proof texting. Run yeah, and, and in such strange ways too, like, you know, one big critique of my book from complementarians is that I don't, I don't get into first Timothy two um, about women not being able to teach and exercise authority over a man. And um, I find that, I found that an interesting critique, you know, that they're so up, up in arms about, because again, my book isn't about who can lead in the church, you know, and, and I see that verse, which has, I think, multiple plausible uh, interpretations. Um, it is it is a difficult passage of scripture. Um, I'm right. not quite sure exactly where I land on it even, but um, I do feel like it it's talking within the context of corporate worship there. So um, if I, if my book's talking about discipleship, you know, that I also don't go to some different marriage texts, and I get criticized for that as well. But why can't women be looked at as disciples? Yeah. And why is it dangerous to do that? So that complaint basically amounts to a complaint about the kind of book that you wrote, right? I guess, like, you know. Like, why didn't she write this other book that has nothing to do with the book she wrote? Yeah, and I also get a <laughs> critique in that way with like, um, when I talk about Junia as an apostle and, you know, I give, you know, what my argument is and I, you know, give a hat tip to, to some other arguments, but I don't, it's not an academic book. Like they say to me, oh, you should have given a thorough, thorough, um, explanation of, of the opposite, you know, competing arguments. And I, that's not the kind of book I'm writing. It's, it, it's, it's kind of in between a popular level. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, for the more informed reader, it definitely is heavier on footnotes and research than, you know, your basic popular level book. But um, it's not one where I'm going to give every, you know, explanation of every definition because it's not an academic book. So, you know, I also get critiqued for that. Yeah, I, th I feel like you lay out your argument in a way that is knowledgeable of and sensitive to a number of objections that you don't explicitly consider. But it's easy to imagine how you might respond if you were mm -hmm. to elaborate. Yeah, I would think so. And Which is, that's the hallmark of good, of, of good writing in the genre that you're in. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I would think that, you know, okay, so you might disagree with me that Phoebe uh, was, you know, in, in a sense, an interpreter uh, to the Romans with, with the epistle that she was authorized to deliver. If anyone had to ask questions, what, you know, obviously they're going to ask the person who delivered the letter that Paul authorized to do so, um, whom she was with while he was writing it. Disagree with me on it. Okay. Big whoop though. You know, like, it's not like <laughs> I'm a danger in the church for saying that, um, you know, same with the junior thing. I, you know, I don't find it like terribly offensive if you disagree with me on it. Right. This is another tactic, right? Where they, where, where they ignore like the central thesis of your argument and they just yeah. sort of pick at the margins and it's like, well, you know, this is totally bogus, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of like, oh, okay. So you don't like yeah. that part of what I had to say, but what about the main thing? Mm -hmm. yeah. Never mind the fact that, you know, the church fathers called Junia an apostle and, and talked about what an honor that was. Uh, oh, sure. Considered an apostle and not only that, as a woman at that, um, and, and yet, and, you know, they don't find it preposterous that the church actually tried to give her a sex change <laughs> so that it didn't say what it said. Um, and then when that, you know, couldn't be uh, carried on any longer <laughs> because it was so disproven, then it became, well, she was, you know, well-known among the apostles, like, you know, um, the apostles liked Junia. <laughs> So I don't know, like, okay, 
what's more preposterous, giving her a sex change or just reading the text for what it says? So is there anything that I haven't asked that I should have or that you would like to sort of elaborate on? You know, maybe I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, I think critique is an important step in, in reforming our views. Um, and I think it's better to do it in a direct way. It's, I think, more loving and honest and, and helpful. However, you know, I, I'd hope that you know, I don't think that people have to agree with everything I write in my book, but I have questions at the end of each chapter, you know, that I really um, targeted church leaders as a primary audience, wanting them to lead the way in their churches, because I, as a lay person, I know that these are, you know, I go and speak in a lot of different churches. I know what's being questioned and what's being asked and, and you know, where there's some real struggles. So I feel like what, this is an opportunity for church leaders to lead these discussions in their own churches and, and what I hope it is, too, is just an invitation for learning together as, as male and female, as disciples, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Um, you know, the different churches reading are going to fall on different ends of the spectrum of, you know, what they think about leadership and, and ordination and things like that. And, you know, I guess maybe I made the mistake in trying to hit that broad audience, because I think these are questions that we're all asking um, about what does discipleship mean and what does a disciple do? And I think these are really important questions for the church right now. So, you know, I'm, it's not so much that I want people to read my book and say, you know, I agree with everything that Amy has to say in here, um, but that I, I really hope to promote more conversations where leaders are leading the way in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing I really, I've really appreciated about your work is, is the observation that there's. I hope this is a fair characterization of your view that uh, that there's too much leadership going on at the parachurch level, right? That that, yeah. that because those people aren't accountable to anyone. No, we're confusing uh, parachurch with the church. Yeah. What, what's that? I said we're confusing parachurch with the church, and we've actually outsourced discipleship to the parachurch in a lot of ways. Mm. Mm. And and they don't have the accountability accountability that our our church leaders have, our elders and, and leaders in the church are the ones called to shepherd our souls and, and to help us in discipleship. And, and discipleship begins in the worship service, you know, with the means of grace God has given us to bless us in Christ. So I think we just kind of need to put discipleship back into the church again and not to say, oh, parachurch is evil, but to, to understand our relationship with the parachurch. And so many people I talk to, you know, actually view themselves as being discipled you know, by fill in the celebrity pastor's name. And, you know, when they, let's say, you know, my book or somebody else's book or some other teaching, they'll check it by that person before, you know, deciding whether or not, you know, that, that'll help them decide what to think about that author. And so it's, so many people don't name their own pastor as, as, the, as the person that they're most affected by in discipleship. I find that really odd. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation and for uh, taking the time to talk. Melissa and I both really appreciate your uh, service to the church. Thanks for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast some and really enjoying it. So it's good to come on. Mm -hmm.